Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, joined by my co-host, Nicholas. Say hello, Nicholas. Hello. This evening, we're joined by a very special guest, film producer, comic book writer, owner and founder of Storm King Comics, Mrs. Sandy King Carpenter. Sandy, how the hell are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Now, where are you guys? I'm in South Carolina. Nicholas is actually in Alabama. Oh, good. So you're all in, in kind of the storm surge that keeps coming up that used to last, you know, a couple of storms of summer and now lasts all year. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yes. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> so take us back in time when you were a kid. What sort of films and comics, books and music were you into that got your juices flowing? Everything. I mean, I, I was omnivorous consumer of movies, books. I wasn't as much into comics because back then they really divided them into girl comics and boy comics. And I always liked the stuff that the boys down the street had better. Mm. Like little Lulu creeped me out. You know, the only things I really, I liked, I liked, you know, Donald Duck comics. You know, I liked Uncle Scrooge a lot, things like that. You know, I thought they were a lot funnier. I liked the scary duck tales and stuff like that. But most of the stuff they thought were cute for girls were not. They're creepy. <laughs> I still and I and I still think they're creepy. So I was really into regular books, but all kinds of books. And a big breakthrough for me was discovering horror novels when I was about ten. And the first one was Frankenstein. And I was just riveted. I thought, wow, this was this was gigantic. So I went right into Dracula, Island of Dr. Moreau, and just everything I could eat up that was that way. Because I thought those allegorical tales were far more interesting to me than anything else. And in movies, I loved everything. I was a little, musicals were a little strange to me. I didn't understand why people had to sing about doing their laundry. <laughs> um, and I still kind of wonder why they sing about doing their laundry you know but I went to a lot of westerns with my dad there were those shared experiences of going to the Cinerama Dome and the Egyptian and very famous old movie houses here but those were like real special occasions where you came down off the mountain and went to the movie theater so it was kind of the shared experience which is what I still think movies are for me which is going to have the audi uh, uh, audience experience Right. I mean, the, the shared emotions. Right, like a more theatrical experience. When did you make the shift towards pursuing the arts as a potential career? Was that until you got to college? Were you involved in theater at all? I did. I, see, I came from drawing and painting and photography. And so my entire life, I drew and wrote. And then in high school, I was heavily into drawing and painting and wound up having a scholarship to the Art Center College of Design and wound up going there early before I went to college. And then I wound up being accepted to UCLA when the Fine Arts Department was actually closed. It was a, a pictorial arts major 
and realized I would probably graduate and starve to death. So I went over to, I used to take my other classes over uh, across the quad in the film department, in the animation department. So that's how I wound up doing something that I could actually get a paying job for. But at the same time was a painter. It kind of came on a dual track. All my buddies were actually in the film department. So people like Randy Cook, who got the Academy Awards for for animation on, you know, all the King Kong and, and those movies. He was a friend. And, I, you know, I just had fun over there. So I wound up on kind of a dual track with the animators and the, the live action people. So did you have any involvement at any point in your career in any in any animation? Yeah, yeah, that's what I did for to make money. I worked with Louis Teague and Carlos Gutierrez, and we made educational films, and then we made a film called Antimatter that got the first animated short Academy Award. They got it because they actually produced it. So I was the anchor. It was not an unfair, I'm not saying this is an unfair situation, they yeah. are, but you know, three of us made it and they scored and, and deservedly so. And then I kept working with uh, doing other educational things. The last film I did with them was Earthquake Prediction, and my part of it was uh, strange animal behavior. And the last <laughs> thing I animated was a frog going up and down a well bucket going... <laughs> <laughs> And but you know, animation moved on from those days of real frame by frame, cell by cell animation into computer animation and those things. People like John Stahur and those guys were dark in the bowels of UCLA geological department usurping their computers and making other kinds of animation. But it's always fun to see what animation became from the old cartooning days. Uh, and it gives me an understanding of dealing with all the effects houses when some idiot says, well, just add three frames to the front. And you, you <laughs> see them either want to blow their own brains out or that person's brains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sandy, would you say that having the artist trained eye and going to college for painting and such, being able to pull emotions out of layers and images has been beneficial to you in your filmmaking career? Oh, yeah. You know, I don't think that any experience I've had in life hasn't woven itself into what I do currently. I think that maybe that's a mistake I see a lot of young people wanting to, wanting to shortcut and be directors, be producers. You know, they're skipping a lot of layers of information that they might consider irrelevant, but that in fact really enrich your ability to know what you're doing. I, I Like being a PA, working a set, working in an office, you bring in a lot more information than you think you're getting. Just about interrelationships with people, the importance of details. It really does matter if wardrobe comes in screaming that the transpo gave him a truck that's for transporting cattle and you find <laughs> out that there actually is hay on the floor. You know, there's there's things like that that if you, like everyone that works for me has to work a week in every department on a film so that they, they learn what it's like. The washing machine breaking is a big deal. The, you know, all of these kinds of things matter. So I think every life experience you have, if you don't know about life, what's the story you're gonna tell? You know, even if you, even if you're, you know, I sold sandwiches for a company called The Movable Feast going door to, I'm the worst salesperson on earth. Every experience you have in life widens your point of view and widens your experience and, and it's about human experience. 
what are you writing stories about? You don't just sit down and write some scene that's derivative of some other guy's scene. So if you don't have life experience, if you don't have art experience, if you don't go to museums and you don't read books and you don't watch movies that weren't just made this week, what are you building on? Beautiful perspective. Sort of training yourself. First of all, cross-training in any profession is good because it helps you understand your coworkers, but also, you know, that level of empathy you develop in the arts does help you tell stories. That's that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, I mean, it's we come from such a rich heritage in, in particularly in movies, but but in comics and everywhere. And look at go back, look at the masters, look at silent movies, which everybody goes, huh, it's in black and white. There's no words. You look at them and you look at Buster Keaton and you look at at some of this really great work and you look at the early, early movies. The first movies were made by women in in the film houses to show the product and they made the first horror movies and and everybody's like oh women didn't do anything yeah right go back and learn film history but also look at what they did without the technology we have now how did they move you it wasn't just that people were like oh there's a train and it's coming at you and it's not on a stage no how did they get you to feel things without all the bells and whistles where did you go it was story it was angles it was different emotions and if they can do it look at how they did it it's what I did learning to write comics I was editing my first writers and even though they weren't writing the story I'd set up for them I was digging it and then I go wait a minute he didn't write what the IP is how the hell did he suck me in <laughs> what, what are the dynamics here why didn't I see this coming and then take it apart and see how it works it's like a watch Mm-hmm. What makes it work? And that's how you learn from what goes before you. Uh, Sandy, you've worked quite a bit as a script supervisor as well. Can you talk a bit about how you kind of broke into that room? Well, the deal with that was I lied my way into my first job. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted I wanted to be on a live action set. There was a movie going on up at AFI. And I kind of bullshitted my way through this interview and at the time they had real cinematographers you know volunteering their their time you know Laszlo Kovacs and and Vilmos Zygmunt and people like that would come in and shoot some of the fellows films and Panavision loaned their cameras and I mean this, these, these were high stakes movies for these fellows I wanted to do one and I looked at the open positions and there was caterer and there was continuity and I thought well I understand about continuity because I'm a photographer I know lenses and I do animation I know screen direction that and if I don't get that I'll, I'll cook so they asked me what kind of book I kept I went, book and I said usual that's a good answer and um, so everybody was gone at lunch and I went into an editing room and I stole uh, some pages out of a book in an editing room, went and copied them, put them back, and then went to figure out what it all meant. And another friend of mine, this is Mr. Bones, <laughs> another <laughs> friend of mine was interning on a, a film, The Taking of Pelham 123 in New York, and I said, hey, find the script supervisor and see if you can get some pages from her book so that I can find out what I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) 
Yeah, and the fellow that produced that movie, I wound up uh, friends with for ever since then. Um, he wound up becoming a big time CAA agent. In fact, he's Stephen King's agent. And oh. I've never admitted to him that I did that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so That's great. If you're listening, yeah. You know, I learned by doing. And I learned by doing it in a place where I wasn't wrecking anybody's life. But I actually had some skills coming out of UCLA that I could apply. So that's that other deal where you bring in what you might add of value to the team. Right. Now, do you recall a script specifically that may have been missing something that you were able to correct at all? No, it wasn't really my job. My job was to support the director and the editorial staff in production. That That's a script supervisor. It was is not like being uh, the head of a writing room on a TV show. You know, I was a, uh, a script supervisor is on the set and they're a liaison between editorial shooting and production. Gotcha, gotcha, and okay. And so, I, as opposed to uh, being the savior, I learned a lot about what was needed in pre and post in shooting that facilitates getting the movie made. So when you made the shift to, why did you make the shift to producing initially from script supervising? It was kicking and screaming. I, I, I always wound up in a position where people thought that that advancement was a natural fit for me. And so I'd be pushed into directing second units or pushed into associate producing things because because I was the watcher, I knew how to do things. And then, uh, so I did it with other people. I, I, I did it on a show called Key Tortuga. I was associate producer uh, when I was working for Aaron Spelling on, on pilots. I would direct second units. But once I got with John, people knew I knew what was in his head. So they would come to me for all these answers to questions and things. And we kept a very lean, small group where Larry Franco was the first AD and the producer. I was the script supervisor. But I knew the other things that John would want handled. And so I moved up to associate producer just because I was running around in circles at the same time doing that job. But it was never a big goal of mine to have a power position. I just liked being on the set and making movies. Right. And eventually, it became inevitable that, particularly on the bigger films, we couldn't just keep ourselves in that smaller unit on the set. So as much as I, I still do script supervision on the second units and try and do those things that I find a lot more fun, I like being on a crew. Generally, what I do is you know, if it's night shoots, I'm sleeping in a trailer on the set so that I'm available for last minute decisions. And then I'm in the office during the day as well. So I kind of work around the clock. Wow. Uh, you just mentioned John and obviously you guys have collaborated a lot. Does that familiarity help in a production setting? Is that something that you can both tell is different when you're working not with each other? Oh yeah. You know, uh, there's a trust factor. And I think like with any team, I, I mean, I love what happens as you build a team and certain players may trade out, may be unavailable, may be on other, other shows and stuff, but you know, I think being able to rely on and trust the team and know where you're going, 
has makes it makes it easier to do things and you can turn around and go okay so now we know everything that could go wrong on this day how are we going to dig out of it <laughs> but i think that because we work pretty clearly defined roles there's no competition i don't care about being a director he makes every producer that's ever worked with him look good like you look at a John Carpenter movie it looks like a John Carpenter movie it doesn't exactly. look like a Deborah Hill movie a Larry Franco movie and a Sandy King movie so the idea is you're facilitating one man's vision and if you do it right it looks like his vision exactly that was Starman the first Carpenter film that you that you worked on yeah. How did that come about? How, how did that partnership come about? A bunch of my movie, my buddies were on Christine while I was doing uh, 16 Candles in Chicago. And they said, you know, you'd really, you'd really like working with this guy. You know, you'd, you'd be a good fit. The next movie was coming up. I got drunk and wrote a letter to him. <laughs> so I, like 180 other out of work script supervisors, would love to do. Starman, and I put it in a mailbox, and I sobered up and went, "Oh man, that was a stupid damn letter to write," and I couldn't get it out of the mailbox. And apparently, he thought it was a funny letter. I don't even remember the rest of what I wrote. I just was embarrassed, and but it worked out. Yeah, yeah I, obviously. I, yeah, I think it worked out. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's one of those things you go, oh man, I just made a jerk out of me. <laughs> right. That's what, Sandy, you've given lectures all over the world on film production. When uh, someone comes to one of your lectures, what are some of the main aspects of filmmaking you want or producing that you want them to leave with? You know, I, it's interesting. You know, one of my big things that I used to say was it's no longer, I, I made them write it down because it's usually colleges and stuff. And say, okay, write this down. It is no longer the 80s. It's not cool to be an asshole. Yeah, I think they need a refresher course in that because it seems like we, you know, we re-upped on steroids being an asshole. Um, so I'd, I'd really like, you know, to, to re-emphasize that. I'd like them to take away from it that we are a, an art, a science, and a business. And you have to take all three of those very seriously. You have to respect the money man. I am one of the highest paid hookers on Sunset Boulevard. So I really have to up my cute factor every time I go in. And re respect that someone's putting enough faith in you to give you a quite considerable sum of money. And depending on you know where you are on the food chain, any amount of that money is considerable. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. Be courteous, be grateful, and do your best no matter what it is. And don't be precious. Be willing to take criticism, look at it, decide for yourself whether that's it's valid and you've missed the boat because you are so had such tunnel vision or you've been working so hard to get that vision down you may have missed the off-ramp to where you were really going. Right. I think those are, it's, it's really hard with everybody making movies, there's always a gimmick. They're making movies on the red, they're making movies on their iPhones, they're making, you know, the first question I have everybody ask themselves is, why are you making this movie? What's your story? Do you have a story to tell? And go back and think about it, because generally I get blank looks. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what's the real story? Tell me why you're making this and what's the story under, you know, don't just don't just make a, a movie for the sake of one scene. What do you think the best piece of criticism that's been directed at you has been? What what's been the most helpful from an outside perspective in that regard? Usually what a bitch. <laughs> the most helpful. Yeah, they they are usually life lessons, you know, where you realize the things you come to yourself a lot by the by this stage of the game where you sit there and you realize that you're going to encounter a lot of jerks. Now, how you deal with it is shows the person you are. And how do you turn these things to, to positives, to problem solve? That's all a producer is, is a problem solver. Mm. You know, a bunch of film students prove every day you can make a movie without a producer. They're out there in the streets doing it all the time. To be an effective producer, you have to be an effective communicator. Criticism. That's a really good question. Probably move or bleed. <laughs> Damn. Grip going by with a set of sticks. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's usually pretty practical stuff. Right. right. I always wanted to say when I was a crew person and felt that the crew was treated unfairly, well, if I were a producer, blah, blah, blah. And I try to remember all the things that I thought when I thought that a crew was mistreated or not fed well or worked to, to death on something, you know, because I worked non-union for a long time before I qualified to be in the union. That oh. So I'd say one of the things that guides me is really those thoughts I had or the way I was treated and worked 27 hour days or sets with no bathrooms and no no food and you know all of those kinds of things so i'd say the biggest criticisms i level i've had leveled at me were me leveling criticisms at my future self mm. from a yeah. production standpoint you kind of just mentioned that producers are problem solvers what has been the most challenging film for you to produce oh wow i had a recent one where i was i was stuck between two companies a production company and a and a distribution company. Um, it was their partnership. One was easy to work for and one was really difficult. I always consider it my mandate to deliver to the end buyer and to deliver what we promised to deliver. When you know you're caught in the middle of a political fight, I'd say that's harder than any practical thing to solve because it means that every move you make each morning from the time you get to the set is loaded with landmines. Try and keep the morale up and the, and the troops moving forward and happy is, I think, imperative. So I'd say that that was a show that was the hardest to solve, whereas other times I've been on shows that, you know, we had two shows in New Mexico because the studios insisted on, on certain shoot dates. We're in monsoon season and it's a land of lightning strikes and the highest mortality rate from lightning. And you have these giant wow. generators that attract lightning. And he said, they're going, great, we're going to kill people for the sake of art. This is not good. But those are solvable, not easily, but they're solvable physical problems where you can sit there and go, all right, now let's figure this out in a way that is not unintentionally death-defying. So I'd much prefer, I always have a saying to everybody at the start of a show, if you have a problem, don't keep it a secret, don't keep it to yourself, it'll only grow. Don't throw up behind the trucks alone. Tell me and we'll all throw up behind the trucks together. <laughs> 
Right. It's just, we're not neurosurgeons. The patient's not going to die on the table. You just have to take it apart bit by bit and solve it. When you're in somebody else's political game, it's rough. I can only imagine. Sandy, I have to say congratulations because on your bio, it says you're the first woman founder of a comic publishing house. So what does that mean to you? I don't know. It was an accident. Uh, (laughs) I didn't know it until a a journalist came up to me at one of the Comic-Cons and said, hey, how's it feel? And I same as it did two minutes ago, but wow, that's slightly sad. (laughs) (laughs) Not due to some master plan of mine. I did it because they were kind of jerking me around at the different houses who all wanted something with John Carpenter's name on it. But it became a big deal because there was a big reluctance and big challenges having to do with celebrity comics. And then there was a whole other side. I didn't realize it was a real misogynistic place to be. And I kind of think, you know, I tend to ignore that stuff. So I finally went to this one company who tried to sucker me on a $50,000 deal and so forth for an exclusive at a convention. I said, so, okay, let's just get it straight. Are you doing this because you think I'm a stupid movie person or because you think I'm a dumb broad? Because it's obviously one or the other. <laughs> and because I don't notice any turnip truck that just drove by. So, you know, my quick answer is, fuck you. <laughs> Excellent. And that's how I founded a comic book company. So, so were people coming to you for John Carpenter comics or did the, did the seed already start with John Carpenter comics and you were shopping that around? Oh, for years they had come wanting to put his name on comics, usually bad ones they couldn't sell. Right. Um, And so he would just say no. And then I'm not the kind of person that thinks every comic makes a good movie or every movie makes a good comic and all that. And we were busy with other stuff. And then one day this story we'd been fiddling around with Thomas Ian Griffith and John and I, we and this was so long ago that Breaking Bad hadn't been made yet. Everybody kept saying it's too dark to be a TV series, and everything everything we always went to do anywhere was too dark anyway. So we really didn't think much about it. I was in another TV meeting with with Thomas Ian Griffith. Can't remember how it came down, but it was really obvious these people wanted to leave the studio, wanted to make themselves producers, and then they went into some whole thing about shooting in uh, on the East Coast. And that was just a, a way to say they wanted to go non-union. And I said, well, yeah, no. The city of Los Angeles is a character in it because the devil walks through the Santa Ana winds and the city's on fire. It's hell on earth. And this under-assistant said, well, you know, it's not like it's a graphic novel we're matching to or anything. And I stopped and I said, yeah, well, actually it is. And I remember Thomas, who's, you know, the six-foot five plus vampire master vampire kicks me under the table and the agents look at me and I just went it's a comic book sorry and left and I come home and John says so how'd it go and I said great we're making a comic book and he says what do we know about comics I said nothing (laughs) I said but we'll learn so we spent two years researching the art and the business of comics now, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you've actually written the Asylum series for Storm Kings, or some of it yourself? Is Yeah. 
What's your own process look like for writing a comic, outlining and such? Lots of legal pads. You know, it it started out with the kernel of the ideas that John and Thomas and I had. So there was like a, basically the kernel of the IP of what the character arcs had to be and who the two main characters were. And then from that, I knew that none of us had written a comic, so that's when I brought in Bruce Jones, who is a real masterful comic writer. He's the one that that really taught me the most. And then people like Steve Niles and Jimmy Palmiotti and stuff are really great writers, and they taught me more. Mm-hmm. But it was in editing Bruce that I learned the most about structure, cliffhangers, page turns, all of that. And I was able to to swing the story back to what the IP really was. Not only did I learn a lot, I was really having a ball, and it was a great discipline for someone that's used to writing screenplays instead. You know, I, I just went from there and then took over the writing and have now written the third arc along with, I brought in, again, a much better writer than I am, Mike Sizemore out of England. And, but... But the the, uh, the artist, Leonardo Manco, lost his marbles a couple of years ago. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no other way to put it. He had a breakdown, and then, then he left for Greece, and then he never came back. And then, I don't know where, and now I think he's back in Argentina. So, you know, there's been a little delay on ever getting, closing the circle with the third arc, where I just sit there and go, ho-hum, okay. <laughs> do you guys attempt to use the same group of artists across all the storm king ips oh no no it's more fun to i mean i've got a core group just because i always dig whatever stories they go hey i have an idea and it's like you know the odds are pretty good it's going to be good you know between Dwayne Sruzanski and, and david j scowl and and alec worley and mike sizemore and and uh, Amanda Dryband, d- d- you know, just writes really sick stuff. You know, there's there's Jenny Wood now is starting to write for me. And uh, there's some people, I don't go with a lot of unknowns or real inexperienced people unless I can team them with a real experienced artist who can handhold them through the pages because money's very dear to everybody right now. The economy's tough. I want the fans to get their money's worth, not take a big chance. So maybe in the anthologies, I'll put a couple newcomers in with somebody. So you've obviously got a huge background in storytelling and how to tell a story. And, you know, you seem to have picked up a lot of it in the comic world from editing and, and studying the, the works of these other writers. Do you think, or do you feel like comic books writing is a little more liberating and less confining than the film world just because there's more room to tell a story no man it's harder oh really oh yeah you know you try and scare somebody in 22 pages yeah you know you'll think you'll think that you're really hot stuff and you know i'll sit there thinking yeah that's that's pretty cool and i'll read it the next day and go I feel nothing. Suspense is tough in a short format. And you'll sit, you'll, you'll like tweak it and tweak it and tweak it. And you'll just feel like the bowstring's about to snap. And you just go, I'm not quite ding there. All right. <laughs> but it's a great discipline to know that only 50% of those 22 pages is going to be words. And you better make them count. And part of those words are description to the artist. So you're like, kind of going, yeah. But it's so, it's such a great way to discipline yourself to go back and write screenplays. 
or mm -hmm. anything else, a novel, because you feel like you've tuned up your instruments and that you've got your, your knives sharpened. When I, when I uh, shoved David J. Scow into comics, kicking and screaming, and I said, you have no balls if you don't try this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you think you're so tough? <laughs> <Come on. laughs> you know, I do that. <laughs> what what about your artistic background? Do you do you utilize any of that art expertise that you have in helping the artists or do you sort of let them have free reign? I choose by who's already good, but I think that what it done is it gave Storm King Storm King comics overall have kind of an identifiable look that sets them apart from other comics, except for the Halloween Nights anthologies, where I try very hard to have every different kind of style and do different things and let there be prose pieces with a freestanding piece of art and, and, and shake it up a little. I have an idea that we can bring really good art that isn't real quick art or isn't abbreviated art into comics that's a little more cinematic so that you look at it and you feel like it's a John Carpenter product that reflects a bit of what we're like cinematically. I also really hate it when you have great covers on comics and the insides don't live up to them. Agreed. You just you just made Justin's night because that's his <laughs> thing. Is like movies, comics, books. If it doesn't reflect on the inside what's on the cover, he, he gets mad. Yeah, like I have a big thing. The trailer's got to rock for the movie or for whatever else we're selling. And, and the cover doesn't have to be by the same artist. I mean, Tim Bradstreet does a bunch of our covers, and it gives Storm King an identity. But I want a fan to go, ooh, shiny object, and then open it up and go, ooh. I want it to keep going. Absolutely. I want that sensory experience to to pay off every page. I couldn't agree more with that. So when it comes to the Storm Kids line, when did, what was the inspiration for you guys branching off to the young adult stuff? Well, we've got, actually, we've got three levels because I've gone younger and younger, too, because what the inspiration is is that every convention, a family will come up to our table and the little kids like the shiny object. They like the, the pictures. And, and our stuff is completely not appropriate for kids. And the mother will say, oh, he watches Walking Dead. And I'll say, well, he shouldn't. <laughs> but, you know, we deal with, and I choose material based on adult fears. Their existential fears. Their fears of what lies ahead. Their fears of, of you know, death, life beyond, old age, you know, all kinds of things that a kid doesn't understand. Even if they're old enough to see the tits and the gore and the whatever else, they're not getting the impact of, of horror as allegory and, and, and working out your fears through that ride. Right. I started thinking about it and I went, okay, what if I had the same really good writers and reached out to Louise Simonson and reached out to Steve Niles and a couple others made those my first two then I had one horror and one sci-fi and thought you know toes in the water what what's going to be the response if there's stuff that's actually written for them and drawn for them by great artists and great writers and then of course we had littler ones come into the table and I'm like oh shit. <laughs> 
So I got Neil Edmonds, who writes, uh, or used to write a lot of Power Rangers. In fact, he used to be a Power Ranger. He's really a good writer and has a, a really wicked, dark sense of the world. And I got him to write Grimstown Terror. And that addresses the eight to 12-year-olds to stuff. So they get an adventure, they get some scares, they get demons that they can kill, but it's appropriate to their fears of loss of, you know, their parents are missing when they come home and they get to be powerful trying to go with it. Needless to say, smaller children show up. And uh, so that's how we got Stanley's, Stanley's Ghost. And that's for four to eight-year-olds. And we just got nominated for an Eisner for Stanley's Ghost. Wow. Oh, yeah. that's, that's excellent. Go figure. You know, the Nasty, Car <laughs> nasty Carpenter's got an Eisner <laughs> for a children's book. And not even in the children's category. It's in Best Single Issue. So we're just like, yes. I, not that awards matter, but damn. Yeah. <laughs> you said you said earlier that you know you don't you don't feel like every comic is adaptable into a film. Are there any comics in the Storm King lineup that that you would like to see enter a cinematic format? Uh, yeah. But the first mandate is not to aim for that. The first mandate is to make a rock and comic, and not even think beyond. Right. Um, because it, because I think you make a mistake. It's like people filming a movie who are already practicing their Academy Award speech. You know, it's it's like it, do your best job. Yeah. And make it make make great great entertainment for what it is. But we wound up with a couple of things that I think could thrive in other arenas. Mm -hmm. And um, and of course, there's NDAs on everything I'm doing. <laughs> Excellent. So I get to just look like a stooge who does nothing right now. <laughs> but I have a feeling there may be some announcements during this summer. Excellent. Excellent. We look forward to that. It's, uh, you know, assuming everybody just doesn't go insane and boneheaded like they seem to during this pandemic time. Yeah. Yes. You mentioned some of your, we were talking about criticisms earlier. I wanted to ask, what's to date was the best advice you've received? Vilma Sigmund told me back in the AFI days, we were shooting in 115 degree heat out at, uh, God, out in the Mojave, in the flat, flat bed out there. And uh, it was this Hungarian fellow whose father was uh, a director that Vilma had known and Laszlo Kovacs had known and stuff in Hungary. And so they had shown up to help with this whole deal. And this guy could not find his ass with both hands. And, <laughs> and his wife, you know, what we were eating in this 115 degree heat was the wife was cooking goulash and hot dogs in this motorhome. And, you know, we looked like Pancho Villa's mechanics. We were all in white jumpsuits and big straw hats, you know, trying to live and shoot this 30s period piece out there while while as a uh, an actress was envisioning uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and you know, all this stuff was going on and a guy couldn't decide on his next shot and I remember saying to Bill Moshe, you know, can't you just choose the shot for him? And he turned to me and he said, I am not the director. I am here to implement the director's vision. And he said, we are all here to implement the director's vision. That is our job. And I thought, if Vilmos Sigmund, an Academy Award winning cinematographer, can tell me at age 20, I think I was, 
that we're all there to implement the director. And, and he said, the day I'm hired to be the director, it will be my vision. That is what guides me on every single movie, every single TV show, is I am there to implement the director's vision. And we all are down to craft service. That's great advice. Sandy, we're not gonna keep you all night here, but I do have to ask, have you seen any good horror movies during the lockdown? What did I see that I kept wanting to have this answer ready? <laughs> I tend to watch old stuff more. Damn. Because I go, for, for comfort, I go back to old stuff. I go back to, like I, I was in heaven this weekend when they had a big Hitchcock marathon. Oh yeah. And you know, I just watched all of it. You know, even the ones I don't care about as much. Um, something about Harry, eh, I don't care. And I, and I watch, you know, the old Quatermass movies and It the Ooh. Terror from Beyond oh, Space. Oh, yeah. It the Terror from Beyond Space and The Crawling Eye anytime. Because um, those are for me like like other people watching, I don't know, the musicals I said I hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's recent. What's your favorite Quatermass movie? Is it Quatermass in the Pit? I like, I like the first two a lot. And I like X the Unknown which isn't a Quatermass movie, but fits into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's one of the one of the first Hammer films that came out right right around the same time. Yeah, yeah, and I love Curse of the Demon. You know, all, all of those kind of just totally do it for me. Oh, yeah, great. Anytime. Uh, you know, there was a thing going around Twitter of, of name five movies you've seen at least ten times. I go, five? Got <laughs> like easily a hundred, and I've seen like a hundred times. You know, I'm a junkie for those, so I tend to go back to that. I mean, I, in in the more recent ones, I loved, um, uh, you know, Bird Box. Uh, was it Bird Box? Yeah, yeah. Um, I liked A Quiet Place. Uh, I liked. Um, I I like the. I'm a big fan of suspense. I don't care how much blood you spill. If you can't get me with your suspense, you haven't got me. Agreed. And I really like all the the, the Nordic stuff. You know, the, the original Let the Right One In. Oh, yeah. Excellent film. Yeah. I am the world's worst with titles. You know, I'm lucky if I remember the titles to our movies. Because <laughs> they all sound the same. You know, I love the, the Korean one, uh, the train. Uh, train to Busan. Yeah, that's getting a sequel. Yeah, I've heard that. I, I'm I'm always really leery of sequels. Oh yeah, for sure. Just like, can't we just revel the fact that that was cool? That would be nice. Yeah, there was something else that you know I loved World War Z. That that was fantastic new take on zombies and was tense as hell all the way through. Yeah. And the casting, international casting, was so good. But I hopscotch all over all time. So that's a the best way to do it yeah flatter films you know they, they don't interest me that much it's just like yeah great he cut off his head again <laughs> so sandy before we let you out of here uh what else do you have on the horizon what's coming up for storm king and such well right now we we have a tv series it can't be mentioned we have a uh, animated feature horror feature can't be mentioned we have uh <laughs> <laughs> We have another horror feature, can't be mentioned. Have, uh, what else do we have going? I'm going to be hitting the convention circuits again, starting with TorpedoCon, 
a Torpedo Collectors Con in LA at the Palladium. Uh, I think it's the last week in, second to last week in July. Uh, and then I'm gonna hit, uh, I'll be at Salt Lake City. I'll be at New York Comic Con. Be at, uh, out in Ontario in December, right before Christmas for everyone that forgot to buy their Christmas presents. Um, and, uh, you know, we have the, the Storm King Comics website for people that like collectible signed stuff and, and, and grub our, our booger troll stuffed animal. You know, just stuff, business as usual. <laughs> On that animated film that can't be mentioned, can you confirm if that's gonna be traditional 2D or CG animation? I believe it's going to be a combination of things, but mostly stop motion. Oh, wow. Oh, okay, cool. I'm utterly intrigued now. I can't wait for that. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's real high end. It's it's should be unless I'm just really misplaying this. It should be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be fine. We're not going to keep you all night. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Great. You guys have a good night. Have a great rest right. of your evening. You too. Yeah. Bye. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.